This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Margaret Simons, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Margaret is a journalist and the author of 14 books, including biographies of Malcolm Fraser and Penny Wong. She won the 2015 Walkley Award for Social Equity Journalism and has been honoured with several Quill Awards for journalistic excellence. Her latest book, Tanya Plebersik, On Her Own Terms, is a fascinating portrait of one of Australia's most influential women that sheds a light on the personal currents that have carried Tanya through moments of joy and tragedy to become the person she is today. So our listeners, Margaret, will know that politics is my favourite subject. (laughs) And I welcome a really robust political conversation. And I, because I'm not a journalist. I definitely have an opinion uh, and I definitely am a Labor person through and through. So I, this book and, and Tanya herself has interested me, you know, for years and years. So tell me about, you know, how this came to be and why Tanya and why now? Okay. So it was my publisher's idea, so I can't take credit for the idea, but I had earlier written a biography of Penny Wong, who... Yeah. I'm a shadow foreign minister, now, of course, our foreign minister. And um, the sales for that book, I think, reflected, you know, wide interest in female leaders and, and female Labor leaders particularly, perhaps. And so Tanya Plibersek, I think, in my publisher's mind, was a natural successor. Um, I was a little reluctant initially. I've written, as you detailed, a number of life stories, biographies and memoirs. And over time, I've become a little bit more conservative about who I take on, because if you agree to write somebody's life story, they're really going to be in your head in a pretty intense way for at least a couple of years. And so they have to be interesting enough. And I think it would be very difficult to do it with somebody who had no redeeming qualities. Certainly not the case with either Penny or Tanya, of course. You know, it took me a little while to decide to agree to do it. And the two things that did help me to decide that were, first of all, the story of Tanya's parents, which um, I think is very moving and part of a larger Australian story. Um, And secondly, the fact that she's a Jane Austen fan, which I am as well. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That got you over the line. When, When you're writing somebody else's story, I guess it helps if they come on the journey with you as well. Like, was she involved? Was she, um, is it authorised, I guess? It's not authorised. She didn't have any right of veto over, you know, how I wrote it or how I approached the story. But, yes, early in the day I approached her for asking if she would cooperate. It was clear that I would do the book in any case. And, of course, with somebody who's a public figure, it is possible to do that. There are enough things on the public record and people who'll speak to you about them for that to be possible. And so while she said she would prefer that it wasn't done in the knowledge that it would be done 
with or without her cooperation. She very sensibly cooperated extensively. I had about eight interviews with her. Um, she introduced me to her family, her mother and her brother, and ultimately her daughter as well. Um, and, um, you know, also helped me get access to other people who spoke. The deal we struck, uh, same as I did with Penny, was that in return for that cooperation, she would be able to approve any quotes or anything I attributed directly to her um, before publication, and also that she would get a PDF proof of the book before publication to check for factual accuracy. But she had no right of veto over you know, my judgments and, and the take of, that I took. Mm, it's really interesting. Talk to me about, you know, I mean, you, you you said that, you know, you're spending two or three years with them. There is a tremendous responsibility, I would imagine, in writing someone else's story. Yes, absolutely, particularly, of course, a living person who is, you know, mid-career. Um, both Penny and Tanya are, are far from done <laughs> with their yeah. Career. I hope not. Yeah, I hope they're still around for a while. And that's quite different from writing a biography of somebody who's who's dead or even who's finished their career. So, yes, it is a responsibility. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is the boundary between private lives and public lives. Inevitably, when you're researching a biography, you get to know all sorts of things about the person, which are really nobody else's business. And drawing that line in most cases is, is pretty straightforward, really. But there's always a few examples, perhaps particularly with Tanya, of things which are on that boundary between the political and the personal, and that mm. involves some difficult judgments. And, of course, the story of her daughter Anna, which is now public, was made public for the first time in this book, uh, was another case. Had it not been the case that Anna decided to speak to me about what had happened to her, then, you know, I probably wouldn't have put it in the book, even though it is a key political story as well as a, a personal tragedy. I've been thinking about um, speaking with you and, and coming to this conversation. And another thing that struck me, what happens as a journalist um, if you come to writing somebody's story and you decide that you, I mean, and this, I'm coming to you with this question because I wear my heart on my sleeve and, you know, that's probably why I'm not a journalist. Um, but the bias, like, you know, is it that you start writing somebody's story and has this happened to you? And I'm not talking about Tanya, I'm just talking about in the past, and you don't like them. <laughs> How do you deal with that in terms of staying neutral or telling a non-biased story? Yes. Well, I guess one way of answering that question is to say that um, I do try, you know, my journalist. Of course. And I would say to you that there's many different ways of being a journalist, so I wouldn't keep saying you're not a journalist. You're doing a job of journalism right now. But, um, but you know, I, I do come from sort of an old, the old school of journalism, if you like, where I have been disciplined to try and divide my personal opinion from reporting the facts. But, of course, if you're writing a biography, part of the job is to try and give a full idea of the person and one's own responses and observations are key to that. So, you know, you can't escape the job of being the narrator, you know, the things you notice, the things you see, and all of that's in the book because it's part of the picture. You know, if you ask me, do I think Tanya Pipasek would be a better leader of the Australian Labor Party than Anthony Albanese, I can point to characteristics of each of them, but I, you know, I'm not going to give my personal opinion on that. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you my personal opinion on a couple of things. One of the things that I think about when I think about female politicians is, and this is the obvious, I guess, Julia Gillard and how appallingly she was treated, not just by the people of Australia, but by journalists. And I don't even mean shock journalists or tabloid journalists. I think that, you know, there was some very serious, I mean, I think journalists in this country missed the misogyny speech and it came to us via The Guardian. Is that right? I agree with you and I've written about that. Yes. Mm. Mm, Terrible. I mean, you know, and I've spoken to Julia a couple of times. I think this country owes her an apology that she was absolutely persecuted. But anyway, so getting back to to female leadership, I wonder where we are with that. Like, you know, I mean, I'd love to see Penny Wong. I'd love to see Tanya as a prime minister. Do you think that the Australian appetite for that is here and now? Is it coming or is it never coming? No, I think it, I think it's here and now. I mean, I agree with what you said about the way Julia was treated. I do think we've moved on a fair bit since then. I mean, Julia herself said, I think, in one of her mm. uh, post-prime ministerial speeches um, that, you know, it will be easier for the next one. I think she's probably right about that. I'm not saying misogyny is dead, of course, or that the patriarchy is done with its mission. But I think, you know, in the time since, what, it's 10 years since Julia Gillard was prime minister, uh, there's a whole generation of women who are now voting and men who are now voting who weren't voting then. We know that the millennials are now the biggest single voting mm. group. Um, and I think for that generation, the idea of female leadership is less challenging, much less challenging than perhaps it is for many people of my generation. Mm. Um, you know, those people are already working in workplaces that have female bosses mm. very often. You know, whereas I remember when I was growing up, a whole lot of men saying, oh, I couldn't work for a female boss. You know, I mean, that's a very old fashioned and sexist and misogynistic point of view, which is less important than it is now. So I think people will be looking at a female leader. They'll be wanting to see competence, toughness, compassion. But if they were satisfied that those characteristics were there, I think that would be perfectly acceptable. I mean, for example, on the other side of politics, Julie Bishop was very popular with yeah. the population in general. It was her yeah. own colleagues who... Uh, who didn't you didn't like that she was popular. I, this is a thought, right, and I just want to know what you think of this. I feel that the expectation is for women to be... It's not apples for apples. They have to be far more convincing, far smarter, you know, I don't even know if that makes sense, but do you know what I mean? They have to, like, you know, you look at, um, at, say, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, for instance, and people say, oh, she just doesn't quite have it. Well, neither does he, right, in terms of personnel. I mean, you know, I, I, if I was living in the States, I'd be Democrat through and through, but you can't tell me that Joe Biden has more charisma than Kamala Harris. And then I feel that there's been a bit of a conversation about Tanya with that as well. Um, and then we've got Anthony Albanese, who I think is doing a brilliant job, but he's not being compared or Tanya's not being compared apples for apples. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, look, I think we are less familiar because of the history of patriarchy. You know, the, the legacy of the patriarchy is that we are much less familiar with female leadership. Of course, there's many, many different models of female leadership. You know, you can look overseas. There's Jacinda mm. there's Indira Gandhi, there's Margaret mm. Thatcher, Theresa May. I mean, mm. there are many. Angela Merkel. 
Exactly. And yeah. all of them are very different, of course. There's no reason why they should be the same just because they're female. But certainly in Australia, Julia Gillard is the only female prime minister we've had. And I think people do look probably semi-consciously with a more critical eye and perhaps fail to rate some of the characteristics that we we tend to associate with female leadership, such as collaboration and so on. Mm. But I do think that's changing. I mean, I don't want to be too mm. sunny and optimistic about it because misogyny is everywhere, but I do think it's changing. Mm. Uh, do you know, I, I spoke to Julia about this as well when, when I spoke with her, and she was very, very popular as the Deputy Prime Minister, and I remember that very clearly. And then when she became Prime Minister, she was way less popular. And I wondered whether, you know, we as Australians will accept women in a supporting role to men more than we do in the leadership role. Maybe so. I mean, I think Julia's history, she herself has acknowledged in her memoir, she's very reflective on this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is part of Tanya's story as well, because Tanya was not in favour of Julia Gillard taking down Kevin Rudd. She thought it would be a disaster. Mm. Uh, even before that, she was not in favour of the combination of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard taking down Kim Beasley and Jenny Macklin. But she later became very close to Julia and is now a very good friend of hers. So... You know, it's complicated. I think history would say that Julia Gillard moving on Kevin Rudd in the way she did when she did was a mistake politically. So you think it was that rather than we are more accepting of women in, in leadership roles than we are in deputy roles? I think it can be both. Yeah, I mean, okay. Australian people have voted for Kevin Rudd, you know, it's a landslide victory. Yeah. And suddenly found that he was bumped off by his own in a way that was not fully explained until... You know, many, mm. many months later, you know, I think that was a factor. Was the fact that Julia Gillard was a woman also a factor? Yes. I mean, you know, it's not all mm. one or the other. It's a complex mix, as I think mm. Julia herself has reflected. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's great at that. Um, she certainly doesn't play any victim, you know, in anything she does. And her career's just gone from strength to strength. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So talk to me more about Tanya. When you're writing something like this, when you're writing somebody's story, do you have a framework of where you, how you're going to start? Like, you know, like, for instance, if you're writing a novel, you have a framework. Hopefully you have a beginning, you have a middle bit, you have an end. Talk to me about the process of writing, firstly, nonfiction, and then somebody else's story. 
Okay, well, to start with, I don't really have a framework um, and I've written novels as well. And to start with, I haven't had a framework there either. So, <laughs> so you're a non-framework person. <laughs> to start with, I mean, you have to find one. You're absolutely right. Or the whole thing would be a mess. But, you know, the initial process is one of discovery. And so, you know, with a biography, I start by reading or trying to read absolutely everything that's been written about the person before, which in the case of a public figure such as Penny or Tanya is obviously a lot of material. And then, you know, you start the interviews, you start the research. It's a kind of, you know, it's, an, it's a process of alchemy, but at some stage, usually you have in the bath or under the shower or sometime when you're not officially working, there will be... Uh, a sort of gliding flash of light and you know you have what I call the tune which is mm. and usually that gives you the beginning as well mm. no I, I totally hear you on that I um sometimes you know when I'm I'm going to be you know when I'm asked to speak or you know I'm interviewing somebody um and I can't get I can't find the tone I can't find how I'm going to start the conversation because we don't as you know we don't send questions it is a conversation so I swim and yeah. quick smart it comes to me, you know, when you're doing lap after lap, yeah. it frees your mind and you know the starting point. Is there a time when you've started writing and you're, you've formed a, a plan and you have an opinion about the person but one of the interviews might change your mind? Yes, and one of the things I try to do before coming to a sort of final judgment on things and this, you know, associates it with your earlier questions about my opinion, um, I always try and triangulate. So I might be coming to a certain conclusion, but I will do my best to challenge that by talking to people who I know will challenge me on it and see mm. if it changes my view. And, of course, not all of those interviews would be acknowledged in the book. Most of them will be off the record with, you know, people who work with Tanya or have worked with her, you know, both her fans and her detractors, if you like. And then you try to to weigh and measure all that in order to deliver a fair verdict, one that hopefully people will recognise as fair. Mm. All right, so talk to me about Tanya's story. Well, Tanya was the child of refugees, um, Slovenian refugees from after the um, Second World War. Of course, at the time they were living in communist Yugoslavia. They were both devout Catholics and being banned from practising their religion was one of the reasons. Um, for them choosing to come to Australia. Also, they were economic refugees in many ways. There was really very few opportunities for them. They both came from subsistence farming families, you know, very poor, even before multiple waves of invasion, rape and pillage by occupying armies through the Second World War. And so her father and mother arrived separately in Australia as refugees and actually met at a dance at the Paddington Town Hall. Um, her father worked on the snowy a mountain scheme. Um, he was a plumber. Um, he had to redo his qualifications in Australia because they weren't recognised here, but he had been a qualified plumber in Slovenia or Yugoslavia as it became. And they set up home together. The, they built their own house in Oyster Bay in Sutherland Shire in Sydney and raised three children. Uh, Tanya's two brothers, Ray and Philip, were considerably older than her. By the time she came along, they were already um, entering high school. Um, but so she was doted on as a child, you know, as the only girl in the family, this little blonde-haired toddler, uh, doted on by her two parents and also her two brothers. And Joe and Rose, her parents, really, you know, arrived with nothing and built 
a secure and loving home for those kids. They were never wealthy, but they achieved financial stability and security. And Tanya had a very loving and secure home. Huge achievement. I mean, it sounds so simple to talk about. But not only that, having had no opportunities for education themselves, the parents, as soon as they had found their feet and, and had a little bit of time to themselves, you know, they read, they listened to music, they educated themselves about current affairs. You know, they, they took every opportunity this country gave them and made the most of it. Mm-hmm. For regular listeners, and Margaret, you won't know this, but regular listeners will know it. Um, a similar background. My parents came from Lebanon. Right. And, uh, you know, we were definitely poor. I was just speaking to someone this morning in the park. I shared a bed with my sister for not a room, a bed, you know, for the for the first, I think, 10 years of my life. And the reason why we were talking about this is because somebody's building a house and should they have a room for each child? Very different days. So I, I can definitely empathise uh, about the Margaret experience. And also, you know, and, and you've probably, having interviewed, uh, written about Penny Wong and Tanya, I feel, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel that migrant children have a pressure on them to do better than their parents. Mm. I think right? I think that's definitely the case for Penny. So Penny was born, of course, in what became Malaysia, yeah. Borneo. And I'm oh, sorry, no, it was Malaysia at the time of her birth, sorry. Her her father came from British North Borneo, which became part of the new Malaysia, and arrived in Adelaide in her case. Her mother um, was an Adelaide woman. And she can trace her ancestry back to the very first European settlers in South Australia. But on her father's side, she's Chinese-Malaysian. And um, she arrived in Adelaide when the marriage broke up. Her mother and her brother and her sort of arrived, you know, in some emotional stress and and so on. And, you know, absolutely hated Australia initially and was at that stage, she and her brother were the only Asian faces in a suburban Adelaide school and were remorselessly bullied. Mm was formative for Penny. She she says she said to me in the biography, you know, I decided I was going to win, basically. I was going mm. to do better than these people at every field of endeavour, which she then proceeded to do. She certainly has. Um I do I do think um that there is it's it's kind of an unsaid pressure, I think, you know. I, I look at families that friends, if you like, who uh, whose parents were here and have been here for years, and they don't seem to have that same expectation. Whereas I think migrant children think, well, you know, the, the reason the sacrifices were made so you could do have a better life. I think that's certainly the case for Tanya. I mean, Penny didn't have that refugee background, of course. But um, for Tanya, I think her parents had a super keen awareness of Australia as offering opportunities, mainly for their children, but also for them. Mm. They simply would never have had at home. And mm. what they retained really strong connections to the family in Slovenia and visited frequently and so on, the kids were raised with that really strong understanding of the opportunities and, and a duty to um, make the most of them, really. Okay, so uh, tell me a little bit about her daughter and how it is that you came to tell that story. Sure. So Anna is uh, Tanya's eldest child. Um, She's, I think she's 22 now. She would have had a birthday in February. And at the time when Tanya was deputy leader of the Labor Party, um, she was, well, the period we're going to talk about is when she was aged between 15 and 18. 
So quite early on in the interview with Tanya, I asked her why she didn't contest the leadership in 2019. So just to refresh people's memories, Labor lost the 2019 election. They hadn't expected to lose. Mm -hmm. Bill Shorten stood down as leader and there was to be a contest for the Labor leadership. And I fell into a depression. <laughs> I mean, I was sure. I was sure Labor was going to win. Anyway, a very bad day for for Australia that was. <laughs> Anthony Albanese, to nobody's surprise, nominated for the leadership and Tanya was expected to as well. And mm. there were others who were expected to, people like Chris Bowen and uh, Jim Chalmers and so on were also spoken of. But on the Monday after that election defeat, Tanya said, no, I'm not going to run. Now is not mm. my time. And it was a huge surprise. Everybody was expecting it to be. Mm, I remember. And yeah, Albanese. And never fully explained. I mean, she said things like, you know, my duties to my family are not compatible with this at this time and so on. But, of course, everybody is very cynical when a politician talks about spending more time with their family. So, anyway, the tr so I asked her about that and very early on got a feeling that there was something there which people weren't telling me. And I talked to friends and colleagues of Tanya's, people like Jenny Macklin, for example, who's a colleague and friend going way back, and said, you know, is it true that it was about the family? And they would say things like, I know it's true. Uh, but, you know, then they say there's more to it, but it's up to them whether they tell you. So I had that feeling all the way through that there was something there. And then, you know, I hope it's because I, you know, demonstrated fairness and, and genuineness of purpose. I was told an outline of the story, but it was not clear whether or not I would be allowed to tell it in the book. But eventually um, I was granted an interview with Anna. We spoke for many hours and over a period of time negotiated the version of the story that is in the book, which in short form, people know this if they've read Good Weekend because it was extracted there. Anna was in an abusive relationship between the ages of 15 and 18. Um, the abuse started very early with the sort of thing which, you know, we women are too inclined to excuse and escalated until it became serious sexual assault. She went to court and her abuser was convicted of one count of assault, um, originally charged with five counts. The same man has also been convicted of other offences involving other girls and women. So Anna told me that story at the time that Tanya had to make that decision as to whether to contest the leadership, she knew that Anna would be going to court as a witness in this case. Mm. And the thought of being the leader of the Labour Party, which basically means you're never at home, um, was just too much. She thought mm. I would support my daughter through it. As it was, the case did go to court. As I've said, Anna was in the witness box for four days, cross-examined for three of them. I think anybody who's familiar with this area knows what a terrible, terrible time the victims of sexual offences have in court. And Anna's case is absolutely emblematic of that. She describes the court process as having been worse than the abuse. Mm. It was not good. Mm. <laughs> it's so heartbreaking. And when is it ever going to change? So part mm. of Anna's uh, motivation for telling her story, I mean, she could have told her story to any journalist, I guess. I, I hope that she told it to me because I'd earned some trust by that stage. But... Um, well, she has started a, a group for victims and survivors called the Survivor Hub, and she wanted to tell her story as part of promoting that group and its work. Um, mm. Facebook um, group and a, a web page, and particularly helps to support women who are 
considering going to through the legal process. When you look at Tanya's life too, I mean, you know, she's had so many hurdles, hasn't she? She has, yes. I mean, as I say, she had in many ways a fortunate upbringing. As I say, it's certainly not wealthy, but secure and loving home, a good education in the state system, went to university and so on. But yes, she's had real tragedy in her life. Her her brother, Philip, second oldest brother, uh, was murdered in Papua New Guinea, just mm. as Tanya was contesting the pre-selection for the electorate. Mm. An awful, awful case, which, you know, the family still weeps over when it's raised. It just mm. And then the problems, you know, that her husband was having himself. Yes. And that ran over a number of years. Yes. Well, Michael Coots Trotter, Tanya's husband, um, is worthy of a book on, of his own. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary story. He is currently the most senior public servant in New South Wales. He's the director yeah. of the Department of Premier and Cabinet. And he's had a very senior public service career under under governments, state governments of various colours. Um, but when Tanya met him, he was on parole. He had had a major heroin habit as a teenager and young adult and had become a dealer, not in a small way, but in quite a big way of heroin. And he was caught and spent um, time in jail, including in Long Bay Jail with Anita Cobby's killers and mm. lots of other things, but redeemed himself. By the time he went to jail, he'd been through the Salvation Army rehab program, got off the drugs, um, that was an exemplary prisoner and therefore got parole quite early, but he was on parole when Tanya met him. Mm. Amazingly enough, on their first date, he told her that story and she still fell in love with him, mm. which says something about them both, I think. It's amazing and that they're still together as a family. It can't be easy, both of them high-profile jobs. We're out of time, Margaret. Such an interesting story. Thank you so much for telling us these stories. It's it's really important that the story of women and the story of women in politics are out there. No worries at all. Thanks for the opportunity. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.